Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today is part one of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 13. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, everyone. Welcome tonight to our discussion of Romans chapter 13. The theme tonight is put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That comes from Romans 13, verse 14a. Let's go back to Romans 12. This is a rolling letter and just refresh ourselves from last week. It ended like this. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Now, I was thinking in the week, is it a good thing or a bad thing to have burning coals heaped upon your head? No, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Good. If he's thirsty, give him drink. Good. For so by doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Well, that's a Hebrew idiom I found out. Burning coals heaped upon one's head. What's an idiom? A group of words established by usage as having a meaning not deductible from the individual words. For instance, when we say, oh, it's raining cats and dogs, we all know what that means, but it's not what the words mean. So to heap burning coals upon one's head, what's that mean? Well, I I found that it's a direct quote of King Solomon. Paul is directly quoting King Solomon in Proverbs 25 when Solomon says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. So in a modern Western sense, we might think, oh, amen. Thank you, God. Thank you for taking care of my enemy. Thank you, God, for dumping a big old bucket of burning coal on top of my person, my that enemy, uh, that person that wronged me on top of their head. Well, but I had looked at Romans 12 as Paul's Beatitudes in that section. And the Beatitudes aren't like that in the book of Matthew, the path to happiness. And then I remembered that Paul was traveling with St. Luke in the Acts of the Apostles. They traveled together and shared many stories. And Luke had written a Beatitude as well about love your enemies. So Luke says it this way, but I say, and it's Jesus talking, but I say to you that here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To him who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other one also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your coat as well. Give to everyone who begs from you, and of him who takes away your goods, do not ask them again. And as you wish that men would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you who will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the selfish. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So this 
thank you, God, for dumping that big old bucket of burning coals on top of that person who wronged me idea was wrong. It, it, it doesn't sound like one of Paul's beatitudes. Why did Paul tell us to heap burning coals upon our enemy's head? And what will be the result for us and for our enemy if we do that? Well, the Phoenicians introduced braziers. They were metal. They were metal pans. And they would be used for burning coals, to, to keep burning coals. For instance, in Jeremiah 36, we're told that the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning in the brazier before him. In the context of the ancient Middle East, coal was placed in the fire pan or the brazier to keep the house warm and also used to cook simple foods. So maintaining that fire for the home would take diligent attention both day and night. And if the fire would go out, in the winters, especially in northern Israel, get very cold. So when that coal supply would be depleted, a woman or man might run out of the house and ask the neighbor for a refill of precious coals in their brazier, in their, in their pan. And a friendly neighbor would likely meet their need and heap burning coals upon their head so they could carry them home and stoke their own empty fire plate. It was an extreme act of kindness. But giving your precious coals to your enemy, heap his head full of coals. Now listen to it again in this context. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. No. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Romans 12 Paul was really talking about the marks of being a true Christian. A friendly neighbor would share their burning coal supply with a fellow neighbor. Usually that's a family member. They would then be warm and fed and they could cook. They might even offer a loaf of bread. They might even give some fresh squeezed juice. But to an enemy? And, and, and Paul is saying, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. And for by doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. To feed an enemy and give him drink was like, feeling heaping full that empty brassiere with live coals so your enemy would have food and warmth and life itself really to an enemy share your burning coal so paul's telling us the mark of a true christian is to will the good for the other even the enemy the marks of being a true Christian. Now in this chapter of Romans 13, he's moving forward. How should true Christians handle worldly authorities? And Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Paul's saying that God is sovereign. And what does it mean to be sovereign? Well, when it's used as a noun, it means a king, a monarch. He is the sovereign, a supreme ruler. But when it's used as an adjective, like God is sovereign, it means he possesses supreme or ultimate authority, ultimate power. So God, Paul is saying, is the king of kings. God is the sovereign over sovereigns, and God alone is also an adjective, sovereign. God possesses all the supreme, ultimate power over all. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. He's sovereign. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, he who resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of him who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. So governments are established to serve the common good of a fallen, disordered 
world. And some type of civil governance is needed in a fallen world, or there's mass chaos. Remember in Exodus 32, the minute the lawkeeper Moses left the scene, what happened? Literally all hell broke loose. And in our author of our book, points out that the the, uh, cherubim and seraphim were there guarding the tree of life right off the bat. The minute Adam and Eve fell, there had to be some type of governance put in place. There were governance codes in the old ancient world. One of the oldest surviving law codes is from Mesopotamia, the Ur-Namnu code. It's found in Istanbul in the Sumerian language. It dates way back to 2100 years before Christ. Very ancient. Also Hammurabi's law code. Maybe you've heard of that. It was carved into a massive finger-shaped black stone steel by King Hammurabi from Babylon. It was looted and rediscovered in 1901. And so scientists studied the font and, and the calligraphy on it, and it was 282 rules, established standards for commercial interactions, and set fines and punishments, meeting the requirements of justice. So law codes have been in existence for a long time, and God gave a law code to the Israelites, to the Hebrews, to the Jews. The first Decalogue, the first Ten Commandments, the law of God, followed by 613 mitzvah laws in the Torah, known as the law of Moses. And John Adams, our second president, of the United States relied on the laws of Moses over Greek philosophy for establishing the United States Constitution. He said this, As much as I love esteem and admire the Greeks, I believe the Hebrews have done much to enlighten and civilize the world. Moses did more than all their legislators and philosophers. Well, Moses got the laws from God. The Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, is God's law code, and it still stands today. And even civil governances realize its importance and its goodness. So one more important fact to understand Romans, that Paul was writing this letter to first century Christians living in Rome. They were living under an imperial cult of governance, emperors who claimed to be deities, who claimed to be gods and sons of gods. And we had gone through Augustus and Tiberius and Caligula, and now they were on Claudius. And you remember that edict of Emperor Claudius? By the middle of the first century, after Christ's death, there would have been as many as 50,000 Jews living in Rome. And there was an expulsion of the Jews from Rome by Roman. Emperor Claudius. He was in office from 41 to 54 AD. This is talked about in Acts of the Apostles chapter 18 when Paul found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, lately had come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Why? Because Claudius, Emperor Claudius, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. There was an expulsion. We see it in Acts 18. Roman historian Suetonius writes about it. Cassiodeo writes about it. There were at least two expulsions of Jews from Rome before this edict of Claudius. In 139 BC, they were expelled. And in 19 AD, Caesar Tiberius had expelled the Jews for similar reasons reasons, causing riots, causing disrest, uh, causing social unharmony. Trying to, they were trying to keep peace, Pax Romana. So the edict of Emperor Claudius had come down, Claudius, and Suetonius writes about it, and he says that since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Christos, Christ, he, Emperor Claudius, expelled them from Rome. Now we know that Emperor Claudius died in 54 AD, and that 
edict of Emperor Claudius was lifted, it was ended, and the Jews were coming back to Rome as Paul was writing this pastoral letter. Paul was writing to Roman Christians in the first century, 57 or 58 AD, and he does not want them getting expelled again from Rome. He's telling them, obey the civil authorities. Be subject to the civil authorities of Rome or you're going to get kicked out again. You're going to get expelled. Then we can't do any missionary work. So obey the Roman laws. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, he who resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Paul is saying that Jewish Christians must obey the Roman laws. Therefore, one must be subject not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, conscience, Paul is throwing in conscience. Should you always obey the civil authority? Paul, is he providing a conscience clause of some sort? Now, conscience clause have become very popular. The American Bar Association over the past four decades, the past 40 years, reports that state and federal laws have undergone a proliferation in conscience clause legislation, pitting individual religious autonomy against public interest, most notably in the areas of education and health care. For instance, modern conscience clauses have expanded greatly from their origin in the principle of conscientiousness objection to the participation in war. Since the Civil War and throughout the wars of the 20th century, the government has routinely allowed exemption of conscientious objectors on religious grounds grounds of conscience. So these conscience clauses also got popular after Roe v. Wade because medical conscience clauses had to be provided so that um, for healthcare workers so they didn't have to participate in abortion-related activities. They could be exempt from that or sterilizations. Refusal to provide abortion or sterilizations, it went against their conscience, their moral belief. And so we see these conscience clauses. Also, the right of refusal for pharmacists to fill prescriptions in some states. They object to abortifacient drugs, which include birth control. And so it's just interesting that already also in schools, in schools, the right to pray. Some people don't want to pray to a certain God or there have to be all these conscientious clauses in the field of education now. Kids who believe in creationism want to be exempt from classes on evolution and parents want their kids to opt out of different sexual education classes that that conflict with their religious beliefs. And so there are conscious clauses. So Paul's ahead of the game here. Should you always obey civil authorities? Remember who St. Paul's writing the letter to, those first century Roman Christians. Remember, we're 21st century American Christians. We're reading a letter written 20 centuries ago, and context matters. Context always matters in Catholic scripture study. But even way back then, Paul knew conscience matters. Therefore, one must be subject not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. I looked up conscience in the dictionary as a noun. It's an inner feeling or voice viewed as acting as a guide to the rightness or wrongness of one's behavior. Conscience matters. Catholic theology sees conscience as the last practical judgment of reason, which at the appropriate moment enjoins a person to do good and to avoid evil. The Vatican Council, Second Vatican Council, describes it as deep within his conscience. Man discovers a law which he has not laid upon himself, but which he must 
obey. It's like that natural law we discussed way back in Romans 1. In the Catechism at 778, conscience is a judgment of reason whereby a human person recognizes the moral quality of a concrete act that he is going to perform is in the act process of performing or has already completed. And all he says and does, man is obliged to follow faithfully what he knows to be just and right. It is by the judgment of his conscience that man perceives and recognizes the prescriptions of the divine law. Conscience is the law of the mind, yet Christians would not grant that it is nothing more. I mean that it was not a dictate, nor conveyed the notion of responsibility or duty of a threat and a promise. Conscience is a messenger of him who both in nature and in grace speaks to us behind a veil and teaches the rules by his representatives. It ends like this. Conscience is the aboriginal vicar of Christ. Wow. Conscience is the aboriginal vicar of Christ. So Paul is encouraging Christians in Rome to obey the civil authorities unless their conscience dictates otherwise. Now, a lot of stories in the Bible. Did Moses violate God's principle of submission to authority when he killed a, a man, one day Moses had grown up, he, he went out to the people, he looked on their burdens, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked this way and that, seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Later, later, he's trying to break up another fight between Hebrews and, and they say, who do you think you are? Who made you prince and lord and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and he thought, surely this thing is known. He's going to be found out. He knows his conscience is telling him he's killed, he's done wrong, and Pharaoh is going to be after him. So he flees to Midian. How about Elijah? Did Elijah violate God's principle of submission to authority when he goes up against the ruling monarch of Israel, King Ahab, and his wife, Queen Jezebel? With that great zeal, of God. Uh, Elijah is going to kill over 400 prophets of Baal that ate at Jezebel's table. Did he, vi did he violate God's principle of submission to authority? This was his king. Did he, or did he follow his conscience for God's sake? How about David? Did he violate God's principle of submission to authority? He refused to surrender to the monarch of Israel, his king, Saul, and his troops. Did Daniel violate God's principle of submission to authority? He disobeyed the Babylonian king's order not to pray audibly to God. He did anyway, and he was thrown into a den of lions for it. Did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego violate God's principle of submission to authority when they refused to bow to the image of the state? And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, was so upset and so outraged that he had them thrown into a fiery furnace. Did John the Baptist violate God's principle of submission to authority when he publicly rebuked King Herod and Herodias for their marital infidelity? Herod's rules are God's rules. John's conscience sided with God's rules. Herodias played her own rules with and, and and she silenced John for good by be having him beheaded. Did Peter and John violate principle? of submission to civil authority when they healed the beggar at the beautiful gate in Acts 4, and they were arrested, and, and they were annoyed with them, the, the people who arrested him, the Sadducees, they were annoyed because of this teaching. They were proclaiming Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. They arrested them, put them into custody, and they ordered them, the civil authorities ordered them to speak no more at any time of this man, of this name, Jesus. They charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus, but they said, we have to listen to God rather than you. We cannot help but speak of Jesus. So they went against the civil authority. More things happen. They're arrested again in Acts 5, and they say, we must obey God rather than men, even when they were charged. So they go against 
civil authority because of conscience. Conscience went against civil authority. Did St. Paul violate God's principle of submission to authority when he followed his conscience? It's estimated that Paul spent almost as much time in jail as he did out of jail. He writes a prison letter to the Philippians. I've been to that prison in Philippi where Paul sat in jail writing to the Philippians, to the Colossians, he's in jail. He writes to Philemon while he's in prison. He writes to the Ephesians. We're going to study that letter. It's beautiful. He's in prison the whole time he writes it. He's in house arrest in Rome. He's preaching to the guards. He can't be silenced. This is one of the places I love in Rome. It's his last holding cell before he goes to his execution, both he and Peter in the Mamertino Museum, Mamertine Prison. And In that prison, Paul's last holding cell, he can't help but preach. He's baptizing guards when springs of water come out of the ground. So when Paul was writing this letter to the Roman Christians of the first century, he had no idea the next civil authority that he was going to face when he finally, finally would make it to Rome. He tells the Corinthians, he's writing to the Romans from Corinth, he tells the Corinthians, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground to boast. Necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So his conscience told him he had to preach the gospel. Necessity is laid upon me. You see the angels coming down with with his crown. Woe to me, death to me, if I do not preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Woe to me. And it was woe to him. It was death to him eventually. Every apostle of Christ, except John, was killed by hostile civil authorities opposed to their peaceful witness. Paul writes this letter to the Roman Christians before the great Neronian persecution really broke out. Paul didn't know that when he was in this very prison in Rome, this final holding place, that he would be beheaded by the civil authorities of Rome, Italy under the head of Caesar Nero's leadership, which in the Hebrew gematria equals 666, the number of the beast. And many of the first century Jews saw Nero as the Antichrist. Persecution of the early church occurred sporadically and localized, usually starting in Jerusalem when Stephen the deacon was martyred under Paul's authority and James the apostle in Acts 12 was beheaded. But all these emperors had had their time to rule and now it was the time for Caesar Nero. He was the grandnephew, the stepson, the son-in-law, and the adopted son of Emperor Claudius, the great-great-grandson of Augustus. His full name, Nero Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus. And he ruled from 54 AD to 68 AD, right when Paul was writing and traveling on his mission field. He ruled for 13 years, 7 months, and 27 days. Following 13 years of ruling, Nero was declared a public enemy by the Roman Senate, and he committed suicide at age 30 in 68 AD. Now, Paul didn't know too much about this Nero guy yet when he's writing to the Romans, but he'll find out about him. Nero's father died when he was 2 years old. Nero's mother remarried Emperor Claudius the edict of Claudius. Nero was adopted by his great uncle, the emperor Claudius, with hopes that he would become his heir and successor, especially by his mother. And in 53 AD, Nero's mother arranged that her son Nero would marry Claudius's daughter Octavia. Interestingly enough, emperor Claudius died very suddenly the following year, possibly after being fed poisonous mushrooms by Agrippina, Nero's mother. Fearing that his younger stepbrother at age 13 might claim the throne, Nero had his stepbrother murdered. 
Nero acceded to the throne at age 16 or 17. His coastal resort along the Gulf of Naples was one of his prized indulgences, and he spent a fortune of state money hosting banquets there. Banquets that I can't even tell you about on on air. I read about them. Uh, they, They were quite audacious. Five years into his reign, Nero and his mother became locked in a brutal power struggle, and Nero had Apagrina killed in an elaborate scheme. He had his own mother killed. Within a short time after her death, his mistress, Papea, began to assert her control. Uh, Nero divorced Octavia, who was banished, but the public liked Octavia better, and their hatred started growing for Nero and his new mistress. Octavia was a constant threat, so she was exiled even further away to a further away island and beheaded shortly thereafter. And this painting is Nero's second wife, his mistress, bringing the head of Octavia, his first wife, to Nero on a platter. Nero continued to riot through the city of Rome with his drunken friends, beating strangers and assaulting women. Nero competed in the Olympic Games in 67 AD in order to improve relations with Greece. He raced a 10-horse chariot and nearly died after being thrown out of it. On June 9th of 68 AD, at age 30, he committed suicide. His death ended the Julio-Claudian dynasty. But Peter and Paul were both alive during this time under this emperor. And St. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome under Emperor Nero's reign in the years between 64 and 68 AD. St. Paul was beheaded in Rome under the reign of Emperor Nero between 64 and 67 AD. He died in 68, so Paul just missed, missed it. The Great Fire of Rome was a huge urban fire in the city of Rome that took place in 64 AD, Nero watched the blazing fire, and a Roman historian, Tacitus, writes about it. He's one of Rome's greatest historians, and according to him, Tacitus, and later Christian tradition, Emperor Nero blamed the devastation of the Christian community in the city initiating the empire's first intense persecution against Christians. It was ordered by Caesar Nero. He blamed the fire on the Christians because he wanted space for a new palace. And uh, he was out of the city when the fire raged. Some say he fiddled. He could see it across the river, and he fiddled and and played his harp as Rome burned. We don't know, but we do know that Rome burned, and the Christians were persecuted because of it. He writes this, the members of the Christian sect were arrested. Next, on their disclosures, vast numbers were convicted, not so much on the count of arson, but for hatred of the human race. And derision accompanied their end. They were covered with wild beast skins and torn to death by dogs. Or they were fastened on crosses and burned. Or when light daylight failed, they were burned to serve as lamps by night. You can see the Christians wrapped and they dipped them in pitch and fuel and, and lit them on fire as night lights for, for Nero's part, garden parties. Nero had offered his gardens for the spectacle. He gave an exhibition in his circus, the Circus of Nero. He would mix with the crowd. It was uh, in the habit of a charioteer mounted in his car. And Tactus writes, hence, in the spite of the guilt which had earned the most exemplary punishment, there arose a sentiment of pity due to the impression that the Christians were being sacrificed, which means the general populace of Rome started feeling sorry for the Christians when they saw the persecution that Nero was putting them through, and not for the welfare of the state, but for the ferocity of a single man. They knew it was Nero's fault at Nero's hand, but it was too late for St. Peter and St. Paul. It was the blood of these martyrs that seeded the church. 
Now, Paul in this letter, chapter 13, has a real sense of urgency. He has a real zeal. This is another more recent example of conscience, okay? Conscience over civil authority. I was brought to mind to think about Sir Thomas More. He was a married layman and a public statesman of England, and he married Jane Colt. They had four children, Margaret, Elizabeth, Cicely, and John. And within eight years of getting married, his wife died. With four young children, Thomas More quickly remarried Alice Middleton, and King Henry VIII was crowned. And he knew of Thomas More's fantastic reputation, and he employed him on an international mission trip for Europe. More struggled with this decision to enter into the king's service. That was part one of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 13, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.